It's now November, and yet the General Services Administration still hasn't fixed its unique entity identifier program, the new contractor validation service that started in April. Industry and at least one lawmaker are losing patience with GSA's inability to solve this problem that's still affecting tens of thousands of companies. In his weekly reporter's notebook, Federal News Network's Jason Miller writes about another chapter of this saga to modernize how the government validates and verifies the company it does business with. And Jason, as a matter of fact, I have tried to get for myself just to see how it worked, a unique entity identifier. And I have a Dunn's number already and does not compute. So this is important, though, isn't it? It absolutely is. And I think if people don't remember what's been going on, it's this started April 4th, 2022, where GSA said, okay, the time has come. We're getting out of the proprietary use of the Duns, Dun and Bradstreet number, and moving to this non-proprietary approach called the UEI, Unique Entity Identifier. And while the initial, okay, you have a Duns number, now you have a UEI number, that went well. It's the validation service or the validation piece that has really been backlogged and causing a lot of problems. And this is important for two reasons, Tom. This is important because, number one, one, you can't win a contract unless you have a UEI number that's been validated in the system, in the in the SAM.gov system. And second, you can't get paid if you don't have a UEI that's been validated. So companies need them to bid on contracts and to get paid from current contracts. And this is why this is so key, because they expected it to be done and expected it to happen fairly easy. And it has not. And here we are again, uh, months and months later. And it's it's you know been going on since April. And here we are, November. And there's a lot of frustration. And what's the latest that GSA is trying to do here? Now I've learned that GSA still has about fifty thousand companies, and that was of a maybe a week or two ago. And grantees are still waiting to fix these validation issues that's causing these delays in awards, as well as getting paid. Now this is almost six month old problem is causing a lot of concern and frustration across industry, as you can well imagine, and on Capitol. Hill. Hill. I heard from Congressman Jerry Connolly, the chairman of the Oversight and Reform Subcommittee on Government Operations, and he told me about, hey, they were briefed from GSA. They understand GSA is working toward fixing these challenges, but this backlog is unacceptable, and they continue to hope that they can create a more efficient approach because otherwise you have this financial risk that's being put upon both agencies and upon the vendors. And I've talked to folks in the vendor community, Stephanie Castro for the Executive Vice President for Policy at the Professional Services Council and Industry Association. Association. She goes, it has not really changed much from April. Yes, some vendors have gotten through the process, but others are still stuck. And, and a lot of companies, as she said, remain stuck in limbo. And that's rarely concerning for PSC. Some can't submit bids. Some can't get paid for work. And she sees no systemic solution in terms of what GSA has said they're doing to fix this. And I think that's the most frustrating point that they said, well, we hope to have this done by pick a date, you know, March, April, May, whatever the date was. And they just haven't given you that. Uh, Tom, real quick, I also talked to Cynthia Smith, who's Director of Government Affairs and Advocacy for Humentum, a global nonprofit working with humanitarian development organizations. They really work with grantees. And this is a, just as bad or worse for grantees because, again, you can't get the grants out the door. You can't get the grants awarded to places in around the world because, again, they have not been validated. Right. And the smaller the entity, the smaller the business or the grantee, the more relative burden it puts on them to do this administrivia nightmare that is trying to get a UEI. What are vendors telling you, Jason? The vendors still are, are frustrated with this entire thing. Now, one of the, the biggest frustrations is the lack of transparency from GSA. And yes, GSA has held Q&A sessions and they've held you know virtual town halls and they've taken questions and they put alerts up on, on SAM.gov. But Tom, let me, let me give you one example of why vendors are frustrated. The last time GSA updated the SAM.gov alert from around UEI has been mid-September. So six weeks without any new 
updates. Even if the update was, hey, as of last week, we made progress. Here's what we're doing. Or, hey, we know there's still a backlog. We know this is still painful. We're doing our best. But no communication from them on the main hub for federal contracting tells you why there's, okay, what what is happening? Where, where is this going? When's this going to be fixed? And I think that is a big frustration. Going back to PSE's Castro, she, she says there should be some more urgency coming from GSA, some more communication. And she points to, listen, if the Biden administration is serious about getting new entrants into the federal marketplace, really getting small disadvantaged businesses more contracts, what would be a greater disincentive than you can't get paid and you can't get awarded contracts because of these UEI problem? And I think Cynthia Smith from Humentum says the same thing. If you're trying to engage new partners and local partners for grantees who give foreign assistance and national security priorities and you can't get validated that's that growing frustration and again if there was a light at the end of the tunnel if gsa said we will have this fixed by december 1st i think folks could relax a little but as far as that we know there is no light at the end of the tunnel i think that that's the other growing frustration and have you had direct information from gsa itself what are, i mean what what do the insiders there say I have talked to GSA, and they do realize, and I do fully admit that they understand the frustration, and they are doing things. This is not something that they're just hoping a technology challenge will happen. They are surging technology resources. They're surging people resources. And a GSA spokesman tells me that more than 373,000 entities have successfully completed the validation process. They said, listen, a lot of these are doing great. 80% of these entities don't need a manual review, and therefore they can be they can go forward without delay. And the 20% that do need this manual review, GSA is bringing in more resources to help them get through it more quickly. Now, they are also taking steps to resolve to improve response times and, and give some immediate relief to, to companies. They have a whole ticket system set up, and they're saying, okay, if you have an immediate need, then the agency or industry tells us we will push that through the process even faster. And then, Tom, the other thing they've done is uh, they have an automatic 30-day extension for any existing SAM.gov entity registrations that expire between April 29th, 2022 and April 28th, 2023. So they're giving folks a, a longer extension So to, to say, okay, if you're having these challenges, we realize that we will continue to, to help you out. Again, those are good things, and I think folks appreciate it. But for a lot of the vendors, it's what about me right now? I need this problem fix and now I'm waiting and I don't hear anything. And there's also some rules around it. One vendor told me, Tom, as an example, if you don't check in with GSA every five days, they'll kick you out of the system. Even if nothing's changed. That's right. Why can't they just give me a push email that says, hey, something has changed. Go check. That seems pretty silly. Or just keep your account there. Even if it's dormant, you can start it up again at some point in the future. You know, speaking of tickets, Maybe they should just go to Staples, get one of those big rolls of paper tickets that are, you know, two side by side. Every one of those has a unique number. Just give those out. I, I think they've spent all this time and effort uh, to develop the UEI. That that would that would even confuse things even more. Uh, uh, Tom, I think that the, you know, and the folks on Capitol Hill, obviously, Jerry Connolly specifically, are paying attention with a lot of industry in his district. He cares a lot about what's happening. And, and I think the, the, the idea here is what is the solution? And I think that's where GSA maybe is falling short is you got to be more transparent, got to be more communicative, and you've got to tell folks what you're doing to fix it. And, and I'm not sure they've done that enough. Maybe they could apply to the TMF to fix it. <laughs> that is always a, an option. But again, they got to get this done sooner than later. TMF, uh, as you know, Tom, can take a lot of time. And, and hey, Tom, speaking of TMF, you brought this up. They just made an award to the Ability One program for something like almost $2 million to fix a procurement problem. So you're not far off sometimes. All right. Federal News Network's Jason Miller. Thanks so much. My pleasure. Check out his notebook. It's at federalnewsnetwork.com. 
Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University, and spent the majority of her career at the FBI, and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology and the Section Chief of Office and Policy for the FBI's Deputy Director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you? And then, and, and how did, what did that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA. And he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, But she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when, when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? It's such a, an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One, I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there and I really grew up there, um, I, didn't, I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers and, you know, it was sort of a continuation of, of my existence. So it did, you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission-focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem-solving all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with, who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of and involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we we actually work with a, a number of those too, and and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? 
Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it, right? The seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job. So he thought about explicitly was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required. And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances, um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour. And you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on, the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, getting confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission-focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short, and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve, um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's, it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my, essentially, my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that back seat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I re realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down. Sometimes you have to tone it up. And that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I, I totally agree and understand that it isn't one size fits all. And 
a lot of leadership is described in bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, how do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? Just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. It's, I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school. And I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay, so, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down in the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right? And diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay, and stay um, engaged and passionate. And then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES-level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yes, yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry, maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly um, and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. Reconnect with a carpool or vanpool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply.